0: Father, we thank you for being with us during worship today, no matter where we are, whether with people in our house church or in our homes, we welcome your presence and the fact that we can boldly enter into the throne room of grace to find our savior, to help us in our times of need. I pray that during the word today, that you would just speak to us, that you would open up our eyes to your scripture and that you would convict us and draw us closer to you, molding us to be more like your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A reading from Joel. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes, Is not the food cut off before your eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? Today, I'm going to be speaking from the prophet Joel, and we're going to be talking about the day of the Lord. Last week, if you missed it, I encourage you, we started a new series in the minor prophets, and we did a survey of Amos, and so today we'll be looking at Joel, and what Joel is talking about is a plague is coming on Israel. And the plague that was coming on Israel was sent by God as judgment for the nation, for their sins, and for what they were doing. See, the the book of Joel is a prophetic word essentially about this judgment that is foretold in the beginning, and then it comes and we see the damage that it does, and then after about what God will do post this judgment. And so... uh, It is a really a prophetic word about the day of the Lord. See, Joel is letting people know that there are consequences for their sin. The nation was in sin and God was not going to allow that sin to just continue. And so the consequences of that sin was the day of the Lord was coming, which really is the day of wrath. For the people that where all the sins, the things that they have been doing, the things that they thought they were getting away with was actually being stored up to be poured out. The Bible talks about the wrath of God as being like a cup because it gets full and then the wrath gets poured out on the people. And that is what the day of the Lord, it is the day of wrath where the restitution for their sins will come and the consequences for the things that they have been doing and the things that they have been thinking that they could get away with. Judgment Day was here. It was upon Israel. What I've realized, I think, with uh, people today is every generation, literally since the first generation in the early church, thought they were the last generation. And it was because we have this understanding that the Day of the Lord is only capital D for day, that it's one day that we are looking to. But really in Scripture, we see there are many days of the Lord and when scripture talks about the day of the Lord, it is talking about a judgment that has come upon the people. Uh, and so when Joel says the day of the Lord is coming, the wrath of God is coming, he's saying that the judgment is coming for all the things, all the sins, the oppression, the, the weight that of the things that you have not repented for, that you thought you would get away with, they are coming upon your head and they are coming swiftly. And so when we think about the day of the Lord, we can actually look around us and see that, hey, there is a day of the Lord coming in my generation. See, we don't know when the day of the Lord, singular, is coming where the final judgment will come that scripture talks about. But we do, we we can look around and say, the day of the Lord is coming, or the day of the Lord is here, that there is judgment that is happening right now in our midst. See, history is full of examples, and you can see this actually very clearly in Daniel, where Daniel gets a vision of the statue of the gold, of the bronze, of the iron, symbolizing the different uh, empires. You have the Assyrian, the Babylonian, the Greek, and the Roman empire, and And that God was foretelling to Daniel that these empires would rise and that these empires would fall. And you read about many of their judgments in the prophets. And if you look at world history over the last 2,000 years, you see that nations that looked like they were unbeatable, people groups that looked like they were taking over and there was no stop to them, God would raise up a person or a people group out of obscurity to come and bring judgment on that nation for the sins that they brought about. And so we can look around us and say, hey, we may be in the day of the Lord right now. Maybe we see the day of the Lord coming because the sins of the people around us. And we can be right in that and say, we are in a nation like every other nation in history. Like every other nation has risen and fallen. Like every other city-state has risen and fallen. Like every other state has come and gone. We will see the day of the Lord for the nation that we live in and the nations around us. We do not know when the day of the Lord is going to come, but we can be confident like Joel is confident here in speaking to Israel and saying, guess what, your sins are going to come upon you. You are not going to get away with what you have done. Last week, I encouraged you to be honest about the sins of our country. That doesn't mean you're unpatriotic. That doesn't mean you don't love your country. In fact, that would be like saying if I were to tell you to be honest about your sins, that I would assume in doing that that you hated yourself. But no, in honesty about our sin, it's a show of love that we care enough to repent, to turn away, and to become whole in God. And so when we look at Joel and we look at what he is speaking to Israel, we can say, confidently that there will be a day of the Lord that comes for the sins that we have committed we have already seen judgment come in different forms but we can be confident that there will be a day of the Lord for America there will be a day of the Lord for all the nations around us even Israel God's people were not exempt from the day of the Lord For Israel specifically, though, Joel was proclaiming that God was going to send an army of locusts to destroy their lands. See, it doesn't always have to be human armies and things like that. We see many times in Scripture that natural disasters were a form of judgment upon a people. And so here, Joel is saying that the locusts were going to come and this was going to be the judgment on the land that God was going to bring. What would happen would not be pretty. And here's one of the pictures that Joel paints in Joel chapter 2, verses uh, verses 3 and then 10 to 11. He says this, Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. This is the locust Joel's talking about. The land is like the Garden of Eden before then. It is beautiful. It is lush. It is full of fruit. But behind them is a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw. their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Like an army... The locusts were going to come and they were going to devour the city and what they were going to leave behind was something that was unrecognizable. It was going, uh, Joel paints a picture of the Garden of Eden here, which is when we think of the Garden of Eden, we think of lush, we think of produce, we think of good fruit, we think of all like not working the land, but the land producing all the things that we want. But he says before it is going to be like Eden, but after it goes through, it's going to be like the desert. It's going to be like the wilderness. This is the judgment that was coming upon the people. Now, if you think this is harsh, then you have to understand that God gets angry about corporate sin. God gets furious when a people group decide that a way of life that is sinful before his eyes is the way of life that they are going to do. We are always, like I said last week, so focused on the things that God loves, that we constantly forget about the things that God hates. And that's what I think is really great about the Minor Prophets, is it reminds us of the things that God sees as an abomination before his eyes, the things that he will bring judgment to, the things that he hates, the things that when he sees these things in our society and in our nation, he will look at that and he will say, the day of the Lord, my wrath is going to be poured out among you. He hates our corporate sin. Now, to bring this into today's day and age, I would say look at our recent debates, right? We've had the presidential debate and we had the vice presidential debate just this past week. And there were four very smart candidates that were debating. And, you know, many of you would think, Sometimes they don't look smart or they're not acting smart, but you have to realize to get to the place that each of these candidates are, they are very intelligent and they know exactly what they are doing. There is not a, you know, an accident or you know, this is just how they are. These are very intelligent people that are doing what they are doing the, the way that they are doing it purposefully. And so we look at the debates, and a lot of people are getting mad at the debates and saying, well, all they did was talk over each other. Uh, there was a lot of interruption. They, there was no, if you watched the debates, there wasn't actually an understanding of what the issues were. What did you get? You got the talking points. You got interruptions. You got shouting matches. You got laughing at each other. You got rolling eyes at each other. You got constant interruption, interruption, interruption. And we look at that, and I, I am guilty of looking at this myself and thinking, how did our candidates, this nation that we have, this great nation that we have, how is it that these are the four candidates that we've put before us, our presidential and vice presidential picks? How, how did we get to this place? But we have to realize is that these candidates know exactly what they're doing, and they know what is going to get people fired up, to vote for them. They know what is going to get campaign dollars into their campaign. If you look at the moderators of, the, of these debates and think, well, these moderators are terrible. We need new moderators. Every single debate. I always hear the same thing, these moderators are terrible, we need new rules, we need new moderators. Well, no, actually the moderators are very smart. They work for a corporation and guess what? These moderators know exactly what is going to get the viewership, right? We had 60 million people watch the vice presidential debate. It is the second most watched debate, uh, vice presidential debate of all time. And we had one of the highest viewed television events in the presidential debate uh, a week prior to it. And if you, this is not accidental, what we are watching unfold before us, how the moderators are doing it. Why? Because the more people that watch means the more ad revenue that these corporations can get. And we talked about what what is the bottom line of everything that we do in America it is about profit. And so these moderators, these uh, media corporations, they are feeding us the news, they are feeding us events like we are essentially in a sitcom right now, or uh, what do you call those things, like the the Big Brother uh, thing where the the cameras are everywhere, that we are watching entertainment before that. That's all that it is. And the candidates know if they speak a certain way and they do a certain thing, that's going to fire up their base. That's going to get more support. That's going to get more dollars. And so if you're asking yourself, why do we have a circus before us, then I would encourage you look no further than the American people themselves. Because uh, I would say we're actually kind of used to this form of debate, where there's constant interruptions. There is no care for the person that we're talking to. It is name-calling. It is political points. It's an echo chamber of our own thoughts. And if, as I'm describing this, you are starting to see social media and Facebook come into your head, then you should because really we have the candidates that reflect our country, right? And so if you are upset at the candidates, then really what you are upset at is the reflection that we are projecting in the mirror of our own sins of our country. Because if we look at Facebook, if we look at Twitter, if we look at the normal interactions of how we work with each other on these platforms, what do we do? We are in echo chambers. We are constantly fighting and bickering with each other. We're not actually debating real facts. Every Each side has their own facts. And there is no convincing the other side of it. We are name calling, we are interrupting, and we are not actually working through our differences with each other, having productive conversations. And so if you look at the debate and you get frustrated and say, you know, this is ridiculous, our candidates are ridiculous, then no, really, you should be saying to yourself, well, the state of our country. Is ridiculous. The sinfulness of our country is ridiculous. The The debates are really only a microcosm of what has been going on for the last decade plus in our country, what Facebook has really unleashed on our country, that we really aren't interested in people's opinions. What we are interested in is getting our own way, right? We really aren't interested in in the facts. We are interested in our talking points. We really aren't interested in the gospel. We are interested in our platform. We are interested in our party platform. We have a nation that when we look at our presidential platforms, we should be not necessarily mad at the candidates, although what they say many times can be infuriating. What we have to be mad is and, and realize is they are only a representation of their people. They just they want power. They want money. This is this is not about serving, right? If you look at the Right. Both of our candidates are the either of them get elected where it's the oldest president of of all time. Right. So each of these candidates have very long records of decades and decades of things that they've said on record. And if you look at over the last 30, 40, uh, uh, 30, 40 years of their life, you see that they say a lot of things that are contrary to what they're saying now. And, and if you ask, how does somebody go from so far in one ideology so far to the other ideology, it's this. They want power and they want money. And what they do is they will reflect back what, the Ameri- what they think the American people will consume and what they think the American people want. And they will give them that. This is not a new tactic that has happened in America. This is things that would happen in Greece 3,000 years ago, things that would happen in Rome 2,000 years ago, things that will happen in the European states 1,000 years ago. This has been going on over and over and over again. It is a cycle that when you look at our leaders, it reflects the people. And so, if you think, man, I'm just going to fall into despair at this point, Joel actually offers a better way than just despair. And Joel offers this in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. He says, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Joel says, yet even now, Even now, even in the midst of the disaster that we see around us, even in the midst of the deep corporate sin that we see, even in the midst of a hundred Netflix documentaries that explain why we are so terrible with everything that we eat, produce, buy, and do, even in the midst of all of that, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. And he says this in verse 3, rend your hearts and not your garments. See, a, a... Usual way how people would show sorrow and lamenting is they would tear their garments off. And that would show like their, their garments, not like they had a thousand clothes like we did. They had maybe one garment or two garments and they would rip those open to show this is serious. It'd be like you taking your 60-inch flat screen TV that you love and adore that's 4K and has all the great things and throwing it out the window to show that this is serious. I'm breaking one of the most valuable things I own. I don't want this. It's like taking your iPhone and smashing it on the floor to show you have been disturbed. But God says, I don't want outer works. I don't want outer displays of lament. I don't want outer displays of grievances. What I want is a heart change. Jesus says that it is, uh, it is the heart that he is looking for in the Gospels. Scripture says that it is not circumcision physically that God is looking for. It is circumcision of the heart, meaning we are supposed to be imprinted with God inside. It is not the outer works. This is not some New Testament phenomenon that we see God changes his mind. He's always been more interested with the internal workings. And those internal workings have always displayed themselves with external displays, right? If you love somebody internally, you externally show them affection and love through hugs and kisses, right? The God is interested in the internal Rending of the heart because he knows that will eventually lead to the external changes in our actions and what we do. God does not enjoy judgment. Like some people have this vision of God, like He's sitting on the throne room and He is just like, "Yeah, this guy's getting zapped today. This guy's getting zapped. Yep, I'm taking away what this guy has. Can't wait to destroy this guy." Like, like God is some really angry old man in the sky, uh, and He just cannot wait to unleash judgment on everybody. But no, if you, if you read the story of Israel, you realize what Joel is saying here, that it, when you read it, you think, God, you are insanely merciful. Thank God I am not God and you are not God because this world would have been destroyed a billion times over. The first time it's like, my Lord, I, you, you're doing this again? I mean, just read the story of Judges, just the cycle of the Judges. It's like repentance uh, then walking away from God and then uh, falling back into old sin then crying out to God for deliverance, God sending a deliverer, repentance, blah, 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 over and over and over again. And that's just one book in the Bible, literally right when God takes the people of Israel out of the wilderness they start complaining and saying, take us back to slavery in Egypt. Can you imagine if you were God? God was so merciful and gracious with these people. He is so merciful and gracious with me. When I think of my own life, how many times do I mess up? How many times do I enter into the cycle of, God, I'm never going to do this again? I repent. I'm, I'm sorry. He delivers me from what I have done. And then walk. I walk right back into the same thing as I did before, right? Look at the story of Israel. Look at the story of your own life and you will realize something, the deep mercy and grace God has over his people. When we get caught up in the sins of our nation, we can say, how have you not destroyed us yet? How have we made it this far? But what does Joel say? He says, God is slow to anger, abounding in love and relents disaster. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love, and he does not enjoy disaster. Right? If we think, well, this country deserves disaster. I want it to happen. Well, that's, it's always good to say disaster should come upon other people, But really, we hope that God doesn't deal with us like that, right? What is the golden rule? Treat others like you would want to be treated, right? And so when you think, God, how do I want God to deal with me? Well, I want God to be slow to anger with me. I want God to be abounding in love with me. I want God to relent any disaster happening, coming upon my life. I don't want God to be quick to pour out his wrath upon my life, well, in that same way, we can look at the country if we think, well, why hasn't it happened yet? Well, we need to understand the character of God that this is how He deals with us, this is how He's dealt with the nations over the years. That He is slow to anger, He is abounding in love, and that He relents disaster coming upon a city. We are His creation. And then this is why we fast because our nation has not been destroyed, right? The, we, you may look, we may be looking over the cliff right now and saying, man, we are going to fall. All we need is a gust of wind, and we are going to fall off the cliff, but we haven't yet. So yet yeah, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. Right when Joel talks about a solemn assembly. He's saying bring the people for the fast. Come to God, Joel says with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Right? Let there be a true dis- understanding of the world that we live in that brings us to our knees before God where we don't live this apathetic life where uh ah, it's not me, it's everybody else. See, in Joel 2 verse 15 to 16, he says this, he says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room, and let the bride leave her chamber. See, everyone is part of this, Our reaction to what is going on around us, it doesn't matter how apathetic or how disconnected you feel, God calls all of Israel to be part of the fasting, weeping, and mourning. You cannot act like you are not a part of it, right? God says, bring even the nursing babies, Right. If anybody has an excuse for the sin in the world around them in the country, it's the nursing babies. They are innocent. They haven't done anything yet. But when when Joel says, no, it's time to consecrate a fast. It's time for us to rend our hearts. It's time for us to have weeping and mourning for the sin, the collective sin of our nation. He says, you better bring everybody. Bring the nursing babies, even the dude that is about to get married and consummate his marriage in the bedchamber. He says, get that guy out here. It is more important than what he is about to do than it is for him to continue on his life. It is more important than that to come before God, to rend your heart, to fast, to weep and to pray and not do this alone collectively because it is saying everybody is part of this. You know, in our culture, we are so highly individualistic and in the West, we will say this constantly, well, that is them, that is not me. And if you are mad at the cycle of profit I talked about last week, where the board, the executives, and the shareholders will always say, it's not them, it's not me, it's them, it's not me, it's them, and then nobody gets the blame. Well, in our nation, we are so individualistic that we will constantly look externally for sin, and we will never look internally for sin. And we will constantly say, well, no, 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 no. It's the right. It's those people. They're they're the crazy ones. It's not me. No, 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 no. no. It's the progressive. It's the liberals. Those are the crazy ones. It's, It's not me. And what we do is we will constantly blame shift. But Joel says here, no, no, everybody, everybody is a part of this. The nursing babies, the dudes that's about to consummate his marriage, everybody is a part of this. Grab everybody. All of us need to come before God. We are not in a position to say, well, that is them. It is not me. You are part of it. And you have to realize that I'm part of this. You are part of this. There is no escaping the day of the Lord. There is no escaping it. We are part of this. The downfall of the church around us, the cultural Christian church, the downfall of our nation around us, this should be something that causes us to run before God in prayer and weeping and in mourning. Alright, right, this is one of the reasons why this year I really believe that God has called us to have prayer become such a deep focus of our church. October 15th, if you haven't seen it on the app yet, we are having, once a month, we have a day of prayer and fasting. October 15th is the day of prayer and fasting that we have this upcoming month. Make sure at night we get together, eight o'clock, we are going to be praying together. And then after that, we'll go and we'll break our fast. But on Zoom, we will be praying together praying for the nation, praying over the elections, praying for repentance, that God would have mercy on our country, that he would have mercy over our nation, for us who know not what we are doing, that we would stop blame-shifting others, and we would come to God ourselves, and that we would rend our hearts in fasting and weeping and in mourning. We are part of this. We are all complicit. We have the right to vote. We have the right to free speech. We have the right to how we spend our money. We are in this system. We are part of this system. We all should look at it. We should not desire destruction upon it. We should not desire the wrath of God, the judgment to be poured out. Instead, we should rend our hearts and pray for mercy that God would open our eyes to what we are doing. Even if the nursing kids have to come, that leaves no room for any of us to be counted out. Listen to God's promise to Israel when they do this. In verse 25, chapter two, he says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. See, when they come and they mourn and they rend their hearts and not their garments and they fast and they call the solemn assembly, all the people and they gather before God, God, his promise to them is restoration. And why? Because we know that this is part of who God is. He is a God who restores. He doesn't break and leave us in pieces. He is a God who restores who we are. But the thing is about this is that this is not a promise for all nations. God does not make this promise to all nations that when judgment comes, he is going to restore them. And so again, I always say our hope should not be in America. Our hope should not be in the elections. Our hope should not be in any one nation, whatever your nation of origin in uh, uh, is, or whatever nation you think like, all oh, the top 25 happiest countries in the world, can't wait to move to Sweden or Denmark or something like that. Our hope should not be in any nation, any people group, because God's promise of restoration is not here to a person, an individual. So if you read this and you put it up your, on your wall and you think like God's gonna re- restore everything to me, that's not what we're saying here in the scripture. This is not a promise for America. This is not a promise for any other nation state. This is a promise for God's people. And so if we were to look at what God means Today in this, it means a restoration of the church. So when I lament and I mourn and I grieve and I pray for the cultural church of America, I can pray and say, God, just as you promised to restore and you did restore Israel, I know that you will restore your people even today, your church. Right? The hope is that the consequences of our actions as God's people, will lead us to repentance so that judgment is not the final verdict. Our hope is that we will enter into the consequences, but that that will not be where our story ends. Our hope would be that after that, that we go to God, that we rend our hearts and not our garments, that the internal change, that we mourn, that we weep, and that we fast, and we realize, God, what have we done as a people? Forgive us. And then God brings his restoration. You know, if you think, well, I, I'm right. I, I, I have I've been following God. I, I, I haven't been arguing with people. I haven't been trying to get my own way. I wouldn't say I'm part of the cultural Christian church of America. I would say that I, I truly am doing my best to follow biblical Christianity. And, and if you've made a, a real self-aware audit... Of yourself, and you're not engaging in platform party politics, if you're not engaging in the election as the hope for your future, if you're not engaging in being enraged if someone doesn't vote your candidate, if you're not engaging in constant arguments and bickering, if you're not engaging in these things, and yet you are in a land where the day of the Lord, the wrath of God will come, well, here is the anchor for God's people during judgments over the nations, and it's, it's this, And Joel, he says in verse 14, chapter 3 multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold. To the people of Israel. Right? The anchor for God's people, the anchor for his remnant, the anchor for the true church is this that in the day of judgment, he will be our refuge. He will be the place that we go to. That when the moon and the stars and the sun, when they are blackened, when the heavens and the earth quake, when the judgment of the Lord is poured out, and we ask ourselves, God, I live in this land, what will I do? He says, I will be your refuge. In verse 32 in chapter 2, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, the day of the Lord can either be a time of great judgment or a time of great salvation, repentance, and awakening. Let's not pull the wool over our eyes and act like the day of the Lord is for everyone else but not me. The day of the Lord is here. The day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will continue to come as the wrongs of human continue to surface. But will it be a day of judgment and finality for us? Or will it be a day of repentance? Will it be a day of salvation? And will it be a day of awakening for the church? See, the day is for all of us. But what happens in it and what happens after is up to us let's pray father I thank you I thank you God that you are slow to anger that you are abounding in love Lord and that you relent over disaster that this is your characteristics they have been for all of time Lord, I pray that you would help us first search our own hearts. And if we have said we have not been part of the problem, that you would convict us of the ways that we have pulled the wool over our eyes and blame shifted as we always tend to do as humans. And Lord, that during judgment that we would find refuge in you, that we would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved that as your people, that we would know that your promise for us is restoration and not judgment, is, is, Lord, is restoring and not disaster. And so, Father, I pray that there would be a true conviction of your body and your church to not rend our garments, to not act like we're all mad, but yet do nothing about it, but that you would rend our hearts, and out of that would come fasting, weeping, and mourning. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Clap.